Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and treat him. Today's date is November 10th, 2022, and I'm your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Don't Go Chasing Waterfalls to Treat Pancreatitis. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Salim Razai. He completed his medical school training at Texas A&M Health Science Center and continued his medical education with a combined emergency medicine internal medicine residency at East Carolina University. Currently, Salim works as a community emergency physician at Greater San Antonio Emergency Physicians, where he is the director of clinical education. You probably know Salim as the creator and founder of the wonderful FOMED site called Rebel EM and Rebel Cast, a free critical appraisal blog and podcast that tries to cut down that knowledge translation gap of research to bedside clinical practice. Welcome back to the SGEM, Salim. Oh, Ken, it's always great to be back on the SGEM. I, I wish I could do these with you every week. I listen to every episode. I always learn so much, and I always get amped up when I know that you and I, the skeptic and the rebel, are getting together. And thank goodness there is this social media that we can stay in contact, because I follow your Twitter feed and your Facebook page, and even though we're separated by large distances... I still get to check in on you and see how you're doing. How are things in the Lone Star State these days? Oh, you know, it's starting to cool down now. And uh, so the weather's getting a little bit more manageable. We don't have these uh, 100 degree days anymore. And so it's it's been going well, Ken. Uh, we're seeing a lot of viral illness right now, as I'm sure you guys are seeing up in Canada. But no complaints, right? And no complaints is always a good day. <laughs> and the funny thing is people hate it when you talk about the weather, but it's snowing here, okay? I know it's getting cooler <laughs> down there in Texas, but it is snowing up here in Canada. Um, yeah, like usual. It's like 80 degrees and I'm wearing a jacket just to paint a picture <laughs> for the listeners. So <laughs> I'd be so hot if it was 80 degrees out. All right. So we, we got to get on with the case. We can't sit here and talk about the weather. Let's do it. So a 38-year-old male presents to the emergency department with acute mid-epigastric abdominal pain and also has nausea and vomiting with this. As part of the patient's workup, he gets evaluated and they find that he has an elevated lipase and a CT of his abdomen and pelvis, which ultimately shows the patient has acute pancreatitis. You remember a recent trial that just got published on whether to use aggressive versus non-aggressive goal-directed fluid resuscitation at least in the early phase of acute pancreatitis, and you wonder, which would be better for this patient? You know, it's really been interesting to see how the whole idea of fluid resuscitation has been debated over the years. This includes what type of fluid should we use, the rate of fluid, for everything from renal colic to pediatric diabetic ketoacidosis, hyponatremia, trauma, and critically ill patients. You know, the standard management for acute pancreatitis has really focused on hydration, analgesia, and investigation for the underlying cause. Recent evidence, however, has challenged the routine use of aggressive large volume fluid resuscitation with the potential to increase the severity of pancreatitis as well as just good old-fashioned fluid overload. 
High quality evidence demonstrating harms of aggressive fluid resuscitation and acute pancreatitis have been lacking until now. Until now, my friend. So what's the clinical question? Does the use of moderate fluid resuscitation strategy in acute pancreatitis decrease the rate of progression to moderate slash severe pancreatitis in comparison to aggressive fluid resuscitation? And what reference will we be reviewing today? De Materia E et al. Aggressive or Moderate Fluid Resuscitation in Acute Pancreatitis Waterfall, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, 2022. So we're going to go through the PCOT. That's the Population Intervention Comparison Outcome and Type of Study. So what was the population in this trial? So these are adult patients, which was defined as greater than or equal to 18 years of age, diagnosed with acute pancreatitis based on this thing called the revised Atlanta classification. And it requires that you have two of three things, typical abdominal pain, serum amylase or lipase level higher than three times the upper limit of normal, or signs of acute pancreatitis on imaging that presented within 24 hours of pain onset. And then they excluded patients who met the criteria for moderately severe or severe disease at baseline, or who had a baseline heart failure, uncontrolled arterial hypertension, electrolyte disturbances, an estimated life expectancy of less than one year, chronic pancreatitis, chronic renal failure, or decompensated cirrhosis. What was the intervention they were looking at? Yeah, I'm really glad that they were really objective and defined this clearly. So moderate fluid resuscitation was defined as a bolus of 10 cc's per kilogram of lactated ringers over two hours in patients with hypovolemia or no bolus in those with normovolemia followed by 1.5 cc's per kilogram hour of lactated ringers. So how did they compare this moderate fluid resuscitation? What did they consider aggressive? Right. So aggressive was defined as a bolus of 20 cc's per kilogram of lactated ringers over two hours, regardless of fluid status, followed by three cc's per kilogram hour of lactated ringers. So basically double the amount of what they did in their moderate group. Yeah. And people probably can predict already where I would stand on this being someone who is less is more philosophy, but let's talk about the outcomes. What was their primary outcome of interest? Yeah, progression to moderately severe or severe acute pancreatitis, again, according to that revised Atlanta classification we already discussed. And so they must have had a number of secondary outcomes. They did. Organ failure, local complications, persistent organ failure, respiratory failure, hospital length of stay, ICU admission, and ICU length of stay. And how about a safety endpoint? Yeah, I think this is always important when you're talking about large amounts of fluid, and it was exactly that. Fluid overload, which they defined by two of the following three, Ken. Do you want to walk us through those? Sure, yeah. They had these three criterion one criterion was non-invasive evidence of heart failure. In other words, they got an echo, radiographic evidence of pulmonary congestion, invasive cardiac cath suggesting heart failure. So that was one criterion. Another criterion was dyspnea. 
And then the third criterion was heart failure signs like uh, peripheral edema, pulmonary rails, increased JVP or jugular venous pressure, or hepatojugular reflux. So if you had two out of those three, then you were considered to be fluid overloaded. Now, what kind of study were they doing here? Yeah, so this had most of the words those of us who are skeptical and reviewing the literature like to hear. It was multi-center, multinational, open label, which we'll talk about a little bit later on, parallel group, randomized, controlled, superiority trial at 18 centers across four countries, India, Italy, Mexico, and Spain. All right, so the author's conclusions were, quote, in this randomized trial involving patients with acute pancreatitis, early aggressive fluid resuscitation resulted in higher incidence of fluid overload without improvement in clinical outcomes, end of quote. Before we go through that checklist, I think you and I could have totally predicted that. <laughs> yeah, no, I, th I think we could have predicted that as well. I mean, it all goes back to that ancient Greek, I believe, uh, Oracle of Delphi, talking about everything in moderation. So let's moderate our fluid resuscitation. All right, let's go through the quality checklist for randomized clinical trials. First question, hey, Salim, are these emergency department patients? They sure were. These were patients presenting to the emergency department with no more than 24 hours after pain onset. Hey, would you consider the randomization adequate? They were. They were randomized in a one-to-one -one ratio using a computer-based central randomization system. And did they hide the actual randomization process? This isn't the blinding of the patients or the researchers. This is the, just the randomization process. It appeared so. Random assignment sequence was concealed from the trial team. And then did they take the patients and then analyze them in the groups to which they were randomized? In other words, did they do an intention to treat analysis? They did. And I had to look through the supplementary information to find this, but it does look like that that is the case. And the patients, were they recruited consecutively? Yes, they were. Yeah, one of the things I do is when I get the PDF, I go into that search area and type in consecutive or convenience. Uh, the patients in both groups, were they similar with regards to prognostic factors? Mostly they were, but the answer here is going to be no. There were differences in sex and causes of pancreatitis. Now, how about when you looked at all the participants, the patients, clinicians, and outcome assessors? This is where we get it blinding. Were they all unaware of group allocation? No, not at all. Patients and investigators were both aware of the assigned trial groups. And all groups were treated equally except for the intervention in question. Kind of unclear here, Ken. I mean, it appears so when you look at the surface and you look at this, but this was an open label, unblinded trial. And so there may have been differences in some unmeasured aspects of the patient's care. And how about the follow-up? Was it complete? Yeah, they did a great job here, 100% in both groups. And all patient important outcomes, were they considered? Yes, they were. And was the treatment effect large enough and precise enough to be clinically significant? Unfortunately, no. This trial got stopped early due to an interim analysis demonstrating a high incidence of fluid overload with no significant difference in that primary outcome. And how about the funding of the study? Did they identify any financial conflicts of interest? 
they did not, and I could not find any when I went and searched uh, some of the other sites, like the uh, PubMed site and all those sorts of things. I just couldn't find it. So no, I'm going to say no on this one. All right, let's go through the results. They screened 676 patients with acute pancreatitis for inclusion, but that's not how many they got in the study. Out of the almost 700 they screened, the final cohort consisted of 249 patients randomly assigned. Now, the mean age was 57 years. It was about a 50-50 male-female split, but 9.2% more females were in the aggressive group. And there was also about a 10% difference in gallstones causing the pancreatitis. Now, the aggressive group did, of course, get more fluid because that's the protocol. They were supposed to get more fluid. And in the first 48 hours, it was 7.8 liters for the aggressive group versus 5.5 liters for the moderate group. But Salim, what was the key result? So the key result here was in adult patients with non-severe acute pancreatitis, there was a lack of benefit with aggressive fluid resuscitation, but there was an increase in harm. All right, let's go through those outcomes one at a time. Their primary outcome, this was the progression to moderate to severe pancreatitis. What did they find? Yeah, so for the moderate group, it was 17.3%. For the aggressive group, it was 22.1%. And the absolute difference between the two was 4.8% with an absolute risk reduction of 1.3. How about their secondary outcomes? So there was no statistical difference in organ failure, local complications, persistent organ failure, or respiratory failure between groups. And then for their primary safety outcome, this is where they're looking at, did they flood the patient? Did they fluid overload them? Yeah, the answer here is a definite yes. I didn't need a study to tell me that. But for the moderate group, it was 6.3%. For the aggressive group, it was 20.5%. And so that gave an absolute difference of 14.2%. And you can calculate it out to give you a number needed to harm of seven with aggressive fluid resuscitation. But Salim, guess what? It's time for your favorite part of the podcast, my friend. It is. It's time to talk nerdy with me. All right, so let's go through the five points. Um, I'm going to start with number one, and this was about the trial being stopped early. It was stopped early due to an interim analysis demonstrating a significantly higher rate of fluid overload in the aggressive hydration group. And now, We've discussed this issue around stopping trials early before on the SGEM. Guyette et al. published an article in the BMJ back in 2012 describing the dangers of stopping trial early for benefit, while as Veal et al. covered the issue in JAMA in 2016. Now, we can't really fault the authors here because the trial got stopped early for harm after about one-third of their power calculation to include 744 participants. The investigators mentioned this a priori, which specified that the conditions that would trigger this trial to be stopped. Yeah, so they had some uh, items, and this this is a quality indicator. If you publish your methodology in advance and you say, Listen, here's, here's what we're going to do. We're stopping the trial either for benefit or harm if these things take place. So they had four criterion. The one was if they found a between-group difference in the primary outcome with a two-sided p-value of less than 
zero, two at the first interim analysis. So they set the bar really high there. And then they had a second interim analysis if the p-value was less than 0.012. The third reason they could stop it was clear evidence of harm in one trial group over the other. So they're looking at safety here as adjudicated by the Data and Safety Monitoring Board. And so that's what they did. They said, whoa, we're getting too many patients that are fluid overload, so we're stopping this trial. And then the fourth thing they said was slow recruitment rate. Now, at the time this trial was stopped, there was a 4.8% non-statistically significant difference in the primary outcome favoring moderate fluid resuscitation, which was smaller than the preset criteria of what? 5.0%. So it was just a little bit under. However, given the statistical significant difference in the primary safety outcome, a larger study shouldn't be necessary to change practice. Now, the second nerdy point is that this was an open-label trial, and I said most of the words when we were describing the type of study were good, but this is something that always should put on anybody's skeptical hat. So the patients and investigators were completely aware of group allocation, while the outcome assessors were blinded. Blinding to group allocation is an important method to mitigate potential bias. There's a good primer on the importance of blinding, which can be found on the Cochrane website, Students for Best Evidence. Now, sometimes it's not possible to blind trials, and this can introduce a potential risk of bias, as we already stated. This is particularly important as the safety outcome, fluid overload, in the waterfall trial has some subjectivity to it and means we should be more skeptical of this result. All right, and the third thing is something we've talked about many times on the SGEM, and this is the statistical significance versus clinical significance. Although none of the secondary outcomes reached statistical significance, all of them had a numeric trend towards harm in the aggressive fluid group. Normally, secondary outcomes, we think of these as hypothesis generating. However, given the worse primary safety outcome of fluid overload, we need to consider the clinical information here carefully. And then finally, Ken, I want to talk about this volume of fluids issue. So when the authors are trying to show a difference between two interventions, it's important to see that they actually achieve that difference. Now, in this case, it was the volume that was given, and you already stated they clearly achieved that in the results when we we're going over the beginning of this trial. Now, open-label trial patients could have gotten more fluids in the moderate or restrictive group, therefore negating that separation between groups. The authors did achieve separation between groups, and when looking at the median fluids received at the first 48 hours, it was 7.8 liters in the aggressive group with a range of about 6.5 to 9.8 liters, and it was 5.5 liters in the moderate group with a range of 4 to about 6.8 liters. Yeah, really important point. You want to see that if they've got two groups they're trying to compare, that they actually did have separate groups that they were able to separate them, and in this case, with the amount of fluid was the key to this study. The final point I wanted to talk about were the exclusion criteria. There was a fairly extensive list of exclusion criteria, which excluded most patients that were approached for enrollment. <laughs> You're being way too kind. That was one of the longest lists I've ever seen. Anyways, I'm sorry, I interrupted. I know, it's Canadian of me, but um, <laughs> you know they had close to 700 patients assessed, 
and only about 250 met inclusion and exclusion criteria. So that's about a, just over a third. Now, some of the exclusion criteria seemed questionable. In other words, they were hypertensive or they had some electrolyte abnormalities, which resulted in almost 100 patients or 14% of them being excluded. All right, that's enough nerdiness. Now it's time to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEMS conclusion. Yeah, I think we agree with the author's conclusion that an aggressive fluid resuscitation strategy led to more fluid overload without improvement in any of the other clinical outcomes. Well, then just give me an SGEM bottom line. We cannot recommend aggressive fluid resuscitation in patients with moderate acute pancreatitis. All right. How are you going to resolve the case you presented? I think based on this new high quality level of evidence, we decide to treat our patient with a moderate fluid strategy. And so how are you going to take this publication and apply it clinically in your practice? This high quality randomized clinical trial should change clinical practice with the administration of smaller fluid boluses, which is 10 cc's per kilogram in patients with hypovolemia and no bolus in those with normal volemia and the addition of 1.5 cc's per kilogram hour of maintenance fluids. So what are you going to tell the patient at the bedside then? Hello, sir. Today you have a diagnosis of acute pancreatitis, which is inflammation in your pancreas. We'd like to admit you to the hospital and treat your condition with pain medication and IV fluids. The newest evidence suggests we should give you a moderate amount of fluids. If we're too aggressive with fluids we could potentially cause you harm. All right, it's time for the Keener Contest. And last week, there was no winner. Wah, wah, wah. You know, it wasn't a trivia question as a guess what I did question. Justin had dislocated his shoulder, and so he wanted to know, hey, how do you think I put my own shoulder back in? And the, the tip-off was he did it on a ski hill. And so he used the Whistler technique. There it is. And I'll put a link in the show notes. You know, come on. Uh, I thought it was obvious. Uh, what kind of question do you have now? So mine's going to be a little bit more straightforward. In what year was acute pancreatitis first described and by whom? Well, if you know who described acute pancreatitis and when that happened then send an email to the sgem at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool, skeptical prize. Now, there are some other FOMED resources on this topic, and I'll put those links in the show notes. But, Salim, so great to get back together with you and talk nerdy. It's always great, and hopefully one of these days it will be in person. I haven't seen you in such a long time and always miss your positive energy and just your just being Ken. Like, I just miss Ken. <laughs> oh, that's so nice of you. I got to get down to Texas. I, I actually have, I think I've only flown through Texas on a connection flight. I actually have to come and experience the wonderfulness of Texas. So that's got to go in the books. It's an open invite. I'd love to go to a dude ranch. That would be fun. All right. We'll make that happen. We will make that happen. <laughs> well, until next time, my friend, can you give the SGEM tagline? Well, since we were just talking about Texas, I'm going to do it with a little bit of a Southern drawl. 
Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time.